A year into the pandemic and people are getting tired of wearing masks. And some people are taking to the streets to make their objections known. But when a symbol tied to white nationalist groups made an appearance, it set two Canadian cities afire. I'm Adam Toy. And I'm Dave McIver. And this is Why. On Sunday, there was another Walk for Freedom protest. This one was smaller than Saturday's event, where protesters came out in big numbers and some were carrying tiki torches. We all saw what happened in Charlottesville, uh, south of the border. And uh, once that became a global symbol of uh, hate was the tiki torch, right? So when we see people uh, running around our city with those tiki torches and running around our city with confederate flags and proud boy jackets and uh, Trump 2024 signs you know it says a lot. That's a story from Global Calgary after Walk for Freedom marches were held in Edmonton and Calgary on February 20th and 21st. The organizers said they were protesting masks and the so-called lockdown in Alberta. It wasn't the first protest of its ilk, and it won't be the last. But as far as we can tell, it was the first anti-mask protest to feature lit tiki torches. If the image of a group of people at a rally carrying lit tiki torches sounds familiar, it probably should. He took aim at the crowd? Yeah, I mean, it was a very narrow street, and he sort of slowed down and then just slammed into them uh, very, very hard. It happened two hours after a planned protest billed as Unite the Right was shut down by police at a nearby park. Hundreds of white nationalists, some wearing what appeared to be uniforms carrying weapons, Confederate flags and Nazi symbols, clashed with counter-protesters. The rally originally meant to protest the city's decision to remove the statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee, but it quickly turned to chaos. You will not replace us! Unite the Right organizer Jason Kessler live-streamed this video. Look, we're being gassed now. The Charlottesville Police Department is allowing people to come in here, gas us. They won't allow us into the event, even though we had a permit. If you do not disperse immediately, you will be arrested. Police stepped in, a massive presence, clearing the demonstrators from the area, declaring it an unlawful assembly. The largest deployment of Virginia State Police in nearly three decades. Tensions began simmering last night when white nationalists carried torches in the city, eerily reminiscent of Nazi Party propaganda events in the 20s and 30s. That was a report from NBC's Tom Costello on August 12, 2017. Prior to 2017, tiki torches were just things you put in your backyard in the summer, right? Uh, mm -hmm. But now post-2017 with the, the Unite the Right rally that happened in Charlottesville, uh, where tiki torches were utilized as a symbol of intimidation because you had you know, hundreds of people at the Unite the Right rally who were convening around a Confederate statue uh, in protest of his removal. Um, you have this symbolic kind of gesture of intimidation where we've seen torches being used in the past in that same way. That's Irfan Chowdhury. I am the director of the Office of Human Rights, Diversity and Equity at McCune University. Uh, and I'm also a hate crime researcher. That's kind of my, my background. So when a torch-bearing mob came to his city, what was Irfan's reaction? My initial reaction was, you know, if I'm being frank here, was WTF. Like, how, how, like, how? Are we still able to have this happen? I know we have freedom of expression. I know we have the charter uh, guarantee, so I'm not discounting that. But I think we've got to a point right now where we're a little bit more... 
um, we're, we should be a little bit more aware mm-hmm. and bold to call out hate and racist symbols when we see them, even if it means we're putting our badge on the line, for example, or our role as a city councilor on the line, as an example, because then you often have that, you know, silence is almost tacit approval, which I think is worse because then it reaffirms to communities of color that their concerns are not being met with the same level of legitimacy that we expect from our leaders. Talk about the torch as a use of intimidation. There are lots of people in this province and in this country who will say a torch is a torch is a torch. It's a source of light and it's a source of heat. However, um, in just a little bit of, of research, past 2017, uh, torches have been used, as you said, as instruments of, of intimidation. The historical significance and context of torches as symbols of intimidation is not far removed from our, our, our history around racial intimidation specifically, right? So we have to look at how torches uh, lit up crosses, other forms of, of light and fire have been utilized by the KKK for example, right? Mm-hmm. You, can fa- you can go online and see images upon images of people in, in white robes and white hoods in the 20s, 30s, uh, you know, in the States, uh, in, in Alberta, we have a, str- a strong history of the KKK in our own province as well, where you have these forms of flames being utilized as symbols of intimidation and racial intimidation, because it is connected when you go back even further, the KKK was created to protest against uh, civil rights related, you know, um, inclusion laws for the African-American community. So that group in itself is, you know, founded on hate and racism. And when those same symbols are being usurped by modern day right wing extremists um, and, you know, far right extremists, that's a concern because we're not saying that it's just a tiki torch anymore. You know, if you wanted to light a candle, you can go to any store and get a very, very small tea light candle to provide that same context you were claiming to be. Because in Edmonton, there were allegations or, uh, uh, um, you know, connections being made by some of the organizers that the lights were connected, the flames were connected to a more of a religious observation. Mm-hmm. Um, fair enough, because we have the protection of re- religious freedom as well. But the tiki torch itself did not have to be used, right? If it's a religious piece and we know that there's symbolism of hate connected to tiki torches, candles would have served your purpose and still allowed you to kind of freely protest as you're guaranteed and allowed to do. So in that historical context of how you saw it being used with the KKK, uh, how you saw it being used even in Nazi Germany where symbols and flames were utilized in intimidation, there's a strong legitimate historical connection around the history of hate connected to you know fire and symbols and intimidation and that was what was being reflected a little bit in the charlottesville uh 2017 rally Mm -hmm. you know that's where a lot of historians who were who are very fluent in kind of you know german history were really calling out the use of tiki torches as visual messages of hate intimidation right Uh, because it's not just one or two people holding them you know go back to the charlottesville you know images it's Mm. hundreds you know if not 
if not more. And so even though we didn't have those same numbers here in, in the province, uh, and at least in Edmonton, you know, on February 20th, it still carries that same form of intimidation. Intimidation, yes, but Edmonton Police Chief Dale McPhee says his officers couldn't find intent. I want to jump now to the tiki torches, which you've mentioned too. I mean, tiki torches, I mean, certainly I denounce that. I mean, there, there's no place for that. We don't have that evidence just because somebody says it's a racist rally or they're using something. You still have to have intent under the criminal code in relation to that. And if you have that evidence uh, that I haven't seen, I will ensure that our people investigate it. You drew the connection between the so-called anti-lockdown protests with far-right groups, and you weren't the only one. Calgary Police Chief Mark Newfield said just this after the protest in Edmonton. Some of the individuals who have been promoting and participating in these events have, have ties to far-right groups and have expressed or been linked to racism, prejudice, and other forms of intolerance. Now, recently, the Proud Boys were named a terrorist group. Does naming some of these groups as terrorist groups, is that going to be enough? Can some of these protests be charged with acts of terrorism or even meet the high threshold of Canada's hate laws? To put it in context, you know, Canada has, you know, our, our, our criminal code definition of terrorism. And part of the way that that definition can kick in is if on Public Safety Canada's uh, terrorism, you know, uh, watch list or, or dashboard, whatever you might want to call it, if an entity is formally listed on that list as a terrorist organization, then there's a higher impetus and a higher likelihood that, you know, our terrorism related laws uh, can kick in. Why that's important to mention is, and why it's important to also mention needing to have, you know, domestic related terrorism groups on that list is when you look at it from the aspect of equity uh, and discrimination, if I'm being frank, over the last number of years, I would say up until at least two years ago, majority of the groups listed on Canada's terrorism list were either religiously connected, uh, mainly to the faith of Islam, uh, or had some other form of ethnic or racial uh, kind of identifier. So folks from the Sri Lankan community because of the, the Tamil uh, tiger kind of movement that's uh, connected a little bit in that country. And so there was a, a strong discrepancy around, well, why are groups that are, you know, a, a, a certain darker shade listed on this list? And yet we're seeing domestic terrorism increase at, at, at huge numbers and we still can't label them or frame them under the terrorism umbrella. And so this is why Proud Boys, I think, were able to be added to the list because of homework that was done. This is why you have other groups that are, you know, right lean, leaning in white supremacist in nature that are now on the list as well. And so it's significant because then it allows for laws to be applied more succinctly because outside of that direction, and this is the challenge around our hate related laws in Canada, the discretionary aspect of our hate laws is what makes it a challenge for consistent enforcement. So this is why you are seeing different responses, different messages from different police services, because their interpretation of the discretion they've been provided to, you know, adhere to the criminal code is what's inconsistent. And so I think there needs to be a better kind of parameter for, you know, police organizations to have a threshold set to know that, you know, it is okay to actually say that these symbols are connected to hate and we'll do our best to do, we'll do what's within our power to, you know, address it in a meaningful way. But I think when you go out and say there was no racist intent that we could prove, that downplays the significance that communities of colors feel.
because it kind of reminds why is it always on the burden of communities of color to prove that racism is happening. And I think that's where people uh, and communities of color and advocates and allies, that's where that frustration lies is, you know, the defaults always prove that racism is happening. And I would love us to shift to that conversation in these types of contexts to prove that racism isn't happening. Because I think that's where you can kind of elevate that discussion to not always have the burden of proof on those that are impacted by hate and racial discrimination and racial intimidation to prove that they're feeling a certain way. Years ago, there were concerns about, as, as you mentioned earlier, groups like uh, Daesh or ISIL radicalizing young men into committing terrorist acts. Uh, but as you as, as you mentioned, there's the uh, the January 6th armed insurrection at the uh, armed insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. There are also uh, recently the Ontario Justice finding a self-described involuntary celibate or mm. incel guilty of 10 counts of first-degree murder from the 2018 Toronto van attacks. That's to me that speaks to a, a real modern problem uh, that we're finding of people becoming radicalized but in 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 a, in a variety of different directions and you know there's probably some overlap but it's there is no one set um model that's that's able that's easily able to be tracked I, i'm wondering is 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 this modern problem is is it a, a domestic terrorism problem or do you think that it's 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 something else one of the models that I find is very applicable to help us understand, you know, the context that we're in, whether it's, you know, uh, from the 90s or whether it's, you know, what we're seeing in the 2000s or even what's happening right now uh, is a model that's been put forward by a, a researcher out in Europe. By, his name is Peter Newman, and it's a process of radicalization. And it has, you know, three main prongs that, you know, uh, the big caveat that I want to put out there is it just because someone has all of these three main prongs does not mean they're going to automatically all of a sudden become radicalized. There's other aspects at play in terms of like your peer support group, your social influence, your inf environmental factors, but grievance, ideology, and mobilization, right? So if you have a grievance around, you know, uh, overreaching governments and you're feeling the lockdown is, you know, a scam, for example, that's something that's out there in some of these circles and you feel that you wearing a mask is the last straw for you to you know your freedoms now are being infringed upon you know that's a strong grievance that you have and so you might just have this grievance it might not necessarily go anywhere uh, but it's fueling your perception it's fueling how you might interact you know online or offline and that's where ideology comes in because now you're 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 online let's say you found like a closed group on facebook or somewhere on reddit that other like-minded folks are starting to really provide you know context to your content so you know this is where you might have people who subscribe to like that uh, QAnon you know conspiracy theory uh, anti-government framework that's really appealing to you at that moment because it's helping you understand your grievance around you know and um, you know government intervention around this pandemic so you have grievance you have ideology and then you have mobilization and mobilization can be many 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 different things right mobilization could you just be kind of convening online with groups of like-minded peers and sharing content that way mobilization could be you meeting up every Saturday in Olympic Plaza or downtown Calgary or you know the ledge grounds here in Edmonton protesting the mask uh, and other things and in, in you know you know ways that are you know uh, helping you have a more 
stronger connection to your grievance because now you're actually acting on it. Uh, but mobilization could also be violent extremism. And that's where the radicalization aspect comes into play. And so I find this model of grievance ideology mobilization to be extremely helpful because it helps to kind of put context around how most of us, even though we have grievance, even though we're fueled by some form of ideology and might mobilize in different ways, uh, because even in the context of, uh, you know, a municipal election happening in our city, I think Calgary has one coming up too. Yep. mobilization could also be voting right? Mm -hmm. Or political activism. So there's pro-social ways people are able to get their grievances fueled by their ideologies, mobilized in positive ways. But then every so often, you still have people that mobilize in very, very violent ways. And that's what we saw with the Toronto van attack. That's what we saw with the New Zealand mosque shooting. That's what we saw with the Quebec mosque shooting. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, endless unfortunate examples in recent years. And the key convener, I think, with all of this has been the influence of social media. And so I think this is where, even if you think about it, right, we're, we're 2021 and, you know, social media wasn't like the force that it was until even, you know, 2010, because, you know, Facebook started mm -hmm. 2006, Twitter shortly after, and you have this, you know, group, you know, slowly follow with the other platforms. But it's almost like that cycle of we've seen the good of the platforms and we're really amplifying that and we're trying to downplay or ignore the bad. But I think what happened with New Zealand is the impetus that actually caused all social media platforms to pause and say, we need to do something about this. Because the person responsible for the New Zealand mosque shooting utilized so many different social media platforms yeah. to uh, to broadcast share, the event. Broadcast, absolutely. And that put a huge pause to say, we need to do more. And that's why you're seeing more content regulation uh, on the platforms in terms of, you know, flagging things a bit more easier. Uh, that's where you're seeing more, um, you know, safeguards in place. You know, I noticed Twitter introduced something recently where um, if you retweet something that's connected to like, let's say an article, uh, they'll notice now if you haven't, you know, clicked on the link and you'll hit the retweet button and you'll get a prompt that says, you know, we notice you haven't read the article. Are you sure you want to promote it before reading it? And so it's just that second step of ensuring the most accurate information's out there. And even right now in the COVID-19 situation on Instagram, you'll notice every time COVID-19 is even mentioned, whether in the image or the, the, the tag, uh, you get a link directly to the World Health Organization COVID-19 page for, you know, accurate information. And so I think these are different ways we're seeing some of the measures come into play that the platforms are able to do. And I hate saying this, but at some point in time, there is some personal responsibility around how we need to ensure we're navigating these spaces in, in safe ways. Because, you know, I think of my kids, you know, when they grow up, this is going to be the norm for them in terms of, you know, engaging online. Like my, my kindergartner is doing school online and he's very, very fluent in it now <laughs> versus someone like me who likely would have, you know, failed kindergarten online. Right. But it highlights kind of that digital literacy that we need to build in now into our future leaders uh, because how this is going to be the norm. And I think even COVID-19 has really sparked that digital divide and digital literacy uh, even further because all of us have been pushed online to continue, you know, some form of normalcy. That three-prong model you mentioned, grievance, ideology, mobilization, is interesting because if you were to drive by the protests, you would see people of all ages and probably all walks of life. This sort of radicalization has been a pretty modern phenomenon. Charlottesville, 2017, Toronto van attack, 2018, the New Zealand mosque attack in 2019, all happened pre-pandemic. Do you think the pandemic has had an effect on radicalization and could that have led to the Tiki Torch marches that happened in Alberta? 
Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. And I think, you know, once once there's more tangible data that folks can reflect on, would likely get a more definitive answer. But if I just kind of share my own observations, I think, you know, people having self-isolation uh, connected to likely increases in whether it's, you know, screen time or, you know, just going down certain rabbit holes, regardless of what ideology you might subscribe to. Uh, I think there's definitely an impact there, right? Because again, unless you're able to kind of counter yourself with, uh, you know, other points of views or other perspectives or other frames of references, all of us are guilty of kind of, you know, remaining in our filter bubble, right? Uh, and I think when we see information that confirms what's within our filter bubble, we tend to dive into that even more. And just by human nature, we tend to discount or ignore things that, you know, might you know, contravene what we have as a, as a personal uh, narrative. It's and I think confirmation bias, confirmation bias, hundred percent. Right. And I think when you have the impact of something like COVID-19, where people have essentially been forced online to some extent, because that might be the only place they're able to get some form of uh, interaction that does have an impact. Right. And there's a lot of interesting, you know, even prior to the pandemic, a lot of interesting in, uh, you know, podcasts out there and research out there that highlights how, you know, the different algorithms that these social media platforms have specifically YouTube of how you finish watching one video and Hey, there's a recommended video for you to follow. That's slightly related. And you just kind of go down that path and, you know, just gets consumed with that information. And again, if, if, that's where you're kind of getting your context for helping you understand your grievance. This is where some of those protests and those marches might make sense for you because you're seeing like-minded peers uh, act out in, you know, real life, let's say. And if that's a space where you want to go to, because you feel that's the only way your grievance can be heard, uh, then you'll, you'll go. Right. And I think even looking at some of the comments on some of these various spaces, just as a, you know, a, a, a silent observer, I would say as a researcher, uh, it's really interesting to see just how, how quickly like fake information spreads, you know what I mean? And how mm -hmm. it's confirmed by people just agreeing with, you know, uh, a headline about our prime minister uh, or uh, an assumption about, you know, the Calgary's Calgary's mayor, um, you know, a, uh, you know, our conversation distrust with mainstream media. So you're fake news. Right. And so it's really right. interesting how this is really being, um, uh, you know, promoted even further online. And so I think in the context of what we're seeing with COVID and in the context of what we had with the previous U.S. president, uh, because that's had a role to play in this as well, that has mm -hmm. been, I think, silenced, you know, thankfully because of, you know, him not being in power anymore. But that always was culminating into kind of that, that, that anchor point for some of these groups, because when you see leaders that are kind of sharing similar pieces, this helps you galvanize even further. And on the online frame of reference, that's where it allows people to get some form of credibility because if, you know, president Trump said this, it must be true. And now you have people galvanizing around this. And this is why, again, you had that kind of a connection point at uh, the Capitol Hill. And this is also why in our own province, we've seen very, very strong connotations of, uh, you know, uh, make America great again, you know, symbolism uh, because of some of those connection points as well. The day after lit tiki torches appeared in rallies and marches in downtown Calgary, that city council denounced the use of torches as symbols of hate. And so when we see people with torches uh, marching through the downtown core, we know what that means. It's not about heat. It's not about light. Don't be ridiculous. When we see people advertising these marches using pictures from Charlottesville, we know what that means. We know who that's meant to intimidate. It's not about the tiki, it's about the fact that they're burning torches. What are those torches used for? They're used to light crosses on fire. 
And this is disgusting behavior, and frankly, we need to denounce it, and we need to denounce it strongly. Global News received a statement from Walk for Freedom organizer Brad Kerrigan following the Calgary March. In the statement, Kerrigan questioned whether COVID-19 actually exists and whether masks are safe to wear, going against scientific consensus. He said the use of tiki torches has, quote, little if anything to do with white supremacy or racism and said connecting rallies with torches is a, quote, silly narrative started during the anti-Trump movement in the USA and has now bled into Canada as a way for politicians to control and spin the narrative. This is Why is produced by me, Dave McIver, and Adam Toy. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can reach us by email, thisiswhy at globalnews.ca and on Twitter at thisiswhy. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to This Is Why so you never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Wash your hands, wear a mask, and stay home. We'll see you soon. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms. <laughs>